Hello, everyone. Just want to say thank you for our wonderful music, and thank you to Danielle for that fabulous meditation on Mr. Rogers today. Um, it was not what I was expecting coming in, but just thinking about Mr. Rogers is such a wonderful life and such a perfect example about how you can be a radical for love, a radical for nonviolence, and do so in such a way with such a gentle spirit. To be a radical and nothing but a sweater just is not the image we always have of our mind about who is going to be out there changing the world, but he did change through hearts and minds. This summer, I've been thinking more, though, about activism in a different way. To me, this summer really started, for those of you paying attention, and I saw posters out for it about the revival of the National Poor People's Campaign, which was about 40 days of action, of protests on the streets, carrying on that last campaign of Dr. King's life. And moving from there, there was very quickly the marches and the rallies about ending child separation and family detention of immigrants and people coming to our nation looking for hope and being mistreated instead. And time and time again this summer, forces of protest, forces calling people out into the street and feeling overwhelmed and feeling this need to march, it can be very deep, very hard. But every time I've gone, an uplifting spirit because I would see on the streets our Unitarian Universalist yellow shirts that side with love and even as I'm speaking about it now I see a poster out in the main room about side with love so I hope you know what I'm talking about um, and just knowing that there's a group of people from all backgrounds, all beliefs who will march together and confront injustice has always been something that's inspired me I was not raised a Unitarian Universalist, but it was that commitment to social justice, that commitment to marching, that first inspired me to walk through the doors to join a congregation after being unchurched for many, many years. And seeing that passion and that dedication led me to seminary, led me to wanting to become a religious leader in my own right, to see that spirit, to nurture it, and to be inspired by it day in and day out. Over the course of the preparation to become a Unitarian Universalist minister, I had a very unique opportunity to study with a civil rights activist, the Reverend Dr. Bernard Lafayette, Jr., who unfortunately is not a name that many people know. He hasn't become one of the household names of the civil rights movement like uh, Dr. Martin Luther King became, but... He's a phenomenal man in his own right. He was a member of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, helped decenter lunch counters in Nashville, Tennessee, helped join the initial freedom rides to desegregate buses on an inter, uh, interstate level. He became an early activist and organizer in Selma and laid the groundwork before the march to Selma that became so famous and just was there at every cause. But he was not a person who liked the limelight. He liked to do the background organizing, so he never really became famous in the way that he could have been. And so I had this opportunity to study with him for two summers in a row, and it was amazing. And Bernard Lafayette, as he was known, because there were a number of other Bernards in the movement, always tells this story about what 
inspired him to train people in nonviolence. He was working with Dr. King on the initial Poor People's Campaign and had a meeting with him on April 4th, 1968 in Memphis. He met with Dr. King in his motel room and they were discussing their strategies and their plans and how to implement nonviolence as a movement. And while they were discussing, Bernard was looking at his watch because he had to catch a plane to get to D.C. to actually start the work. And as he was about to leave, Dr. King stopped him and said, Lafayette, the next campaign we have to do is to institutionalize and internationalize nonviolence as a movement. And with those words and that last call, he left Dr. King, left the motel. And as he got to the airport and he was about to board the plane, that's when he received the news that Dr. King had been shot. And he boarded the plane, and he says as he got on the plane, he wasn't worried. He wasn't worried people have attempted to take Dr. King's life before. They lived in danger, and he was convinced that they would overcome, that he would be all right. So the plane took off, and with it, Dr. Uh, Bernard felt hopeful, felt worried, And unfortunately, when the flight landed, that's when he received the news that Dr. King was not going to make it. And with that news, he just kept thinking about that last call to institutionalize and internationalize nonviolence as a movement. So that's how he dedicated his life, that last commission from Dr. King. And he worked to establish a center's of nonviolence training throughout Africa, in the U.S., in Colombia. And it was there that I met him in the um, U.S. Center at the University of Rhode Island Center for Nonviolence and Peace Studies, where every year he hosts two-week-long trainings for activists, for organizers, for people around the world to come together and study these principles, to be inspired by them and to work together. And he'll tell stories about the civil rights movement, He'll tell stories about everyone, and that alone is inspiring to just know that to be involved with this living legend and to be part of that history. And even more so than that, it's to be connected with people from around the world who are dedicated to the cause of nonviolence. When I was there, it was about 40 people who came together to study, 40 people from 17 different countries. And to spend two weeks with them all day, just sitting around and talking about the world, talking about what it can be to be inspired by love and justice, to see some folks who are on the street activists, other folks are teachers trying to institutionalize in their own schools these studies and practice of nonviolence and peace as a way of life. It's to just be uplifted, to eat, sleep, and breathe hope. One of the... um, key cores of this training are the six principles of nonviolence that can be found in Dr. King's book, The Pilgrimage to Nonviolence, about the um, Montgomery bus boycotts. And these six principles, as we were saying, there's many of them that overlap with our seven UU principles. Uh, And I'm going to share them with you today. The first is that nonviolence is a way of life for courageous people. It's not just about that activism. It's not just on the street. It is a way of life, something to embody love and compassion for all people, to be that Mr. Rogers who can be gentle and just in everything you do, 
tell people to remember love and connection. The second is that the beloved community is a framework for the future. How we be, how we exist, it's not just looking at some end goal. It is not an ends justify the means sort of way. To be nonviolent is to practice it every day, is to build communities that model it. Say within our UU congregations, it's to practice nonviolence, to practice compassion for one another, to know that we may never see the ultimate promised land, we may never see what social justice looks like on a universal scale, so we can build it here and now. We can work together in every moment of our life. The third principle is to attack the forces of evil and not persons doing evil. It is a reminder that most every human is trying their best to be a good person. It is um, to look at what we talk about in many social justice circles, that we need to focus on systems of oppression, that there are these overwhelming forces, overwhelming society things, the prison industrial complex, systems of war, and you can maybe focus on one bad politician, and if you just got that one person removed and you did not address the systems of fear or systems of hatred behind them, they'll just be replaced by someone else who has those same beliefs. That to attack the forces of evil, and I know we don't always love the word evil and you use circumstances, but to really look at why there's the fear, why there's the hatred, and to work against that. Um, Bernard had the saying that what the... They didn't go after individual racists when they were working in the um, civil rights movement. They worked towards the laws that gave them their power. It wasn't getting George Wallace out of office. It was how can we get voting rights? How can we address the underlying core issues? Our fourth principle is to um, accept suffering without retaliation for the sake of the cause to achieve your goal. The work of building a new future, of resisting something, is going to cause pain. You are going to get hurt. It is an unfortunate and unnecessary, unfortunate but necessary part, excuse me. And the key is to know that as you're working for justice to accept the sacrifices that will come along, provided that you are achieving a goal. When we say have activists go out in the street and get arrested, the goal is not to be arrested. The goal is to make the publicity for people to see that arrests are happening. And I've always been a little nervous about the principle to accept suffering because so often in religious circumstances people have been told to accept suffering in ways that have kept them down. Often I think of people in abusive relationships who are told to accept that suffering to show that you love them, and that's, that's not what this principle is about. No one wants you to be hurt just for the sake of being hurt. If you're in a place and position of where you are just receiving pain and there's no way, no way to change, no, no further goal, then get out of that situation. Look after yourself. That is key. The fifth principle is to avoid internal violence of the spirit as well as 
external physical violence. It is to not let hate into your heart. It is to remember love, to remember justice. It's that time where if the work gets too hard, if you feel that you are in threat, to be able to take a step back, to rejuvenate, to remember to keep love and peace in your heart. This final principle is the universe is on the side of justice. Often taken as a very theological claim, one that I know, again, I sometimes have struggled with because I have a hard time believing that at the end of the day, everything will turn out well. It's a leap of faith I'm not always able to take myself. And one of my trainers had this great line about justice. To stop thinking of justice necessarily as a force that will happen, but maybe justice as balance. And what he meant by that was for the universe to be just, if people invest in violence, if they invest in hatred, if they invest in you know, systems of abuse, systems of oppression, then the universe being just, is that is the things that we will receive. If we train people to hate, if that's what we focus on, that's what we get. So instead, with the universe being just, with the universe being balanced, if we instead focused on love, focused on centering ourselves, focused on working and building counter-oppressive worlds, then yes, a just universe will give us those things. It becomes on us to work towards justice, and only then can we get it. We often talk about the universe bending towards justice, and there's that line, only if we bend it. And that is where that principle really leads me. And looking at these principles, I try to find ways to embody them in my life day in and day out. And it's a struggle. It really can be, which is why we need our communities to work for it, to work towards justice and center in those ways. And that's something I think of every time I'm at a service and we brought light our chalice flame. Our Unitarian Universalist chalice, I'm sure everyone here has a different belief about what it means. Have you ever had that question from a visitor? Well, what is that thing you light? Why do you do it? (laughs) And every time I've heard someone ask that question, we've all kind of looked at our feet, (laughs) said, I don't know, the chalice means, well, what does it mean to you? And there are so many different options, but I'm personally a person who loves history. So I look at when the chalice symbol itself was designed and implemented. And I don't know how many of you here know, know the history of it. It started around the Second World War. Um, the Unitarian Service Committee was working to help refugees escape Germany, come to America, working to get supplies to people in Europe who needed them. And over the course of the work, no one knew what a Unitarian was. And language was often a barrier, and people wanted to help others find and recognize who they were, something quickly that could be recognizable. So they commissioned an artist to draw a symbol that evoked religion without looking like any one particular religion, Something that if people saw that symbol, hopefully they would come to learn that this light means safety, 
This light means a group that is going to resist evil, that is going to help those in need. And for that reason, they designed what ultimately became our chalice. So every time I look at our chalice flame, every time I see it, I think of that commitment to help refugees. I think of the commitment to provide aid to those in need, that commitment to open doors and welcome people into our faith, to welcome people into our lives. Every time I look at our chalice, I think about that. It's one of those things I would ask all of you as well to consider when we light our chalice about how we can be opening, how we can be nonviolent, how we can perpetuate resistance and love and gear ourselves towards balance, towards justice. And you can think about whatever else the chalice means to you, but I would ask you to consider that as well, that nonviolence resistance goes back to the very symbol of what it is to be a Unitarian Universalist. <laughs>